out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, or not. Anyway, this is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be spinning the wheels of steel. Bring you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop as I cross time, space, and genre. This week, the special guest is going to be John Andrew Frederick from the band uh, The Black Watch. As we caught up and, um, yes, had a chat, as you do. He was based in uh, Santa Barbara and I was based in Norwich. And that's how we like it. Anyway, I've got an interview that I'll break up into about three or four easy-to-digest little segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the show on the road, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Georgia. The first time I saw you, it felt like a dream One I never wanted to wake from you to see The scene was, the world was, whirling along As I stood and played you, this little song Yeah. 
fantastic power pop sounds from the Black Watch, and that's the track titled Georgette, Georgette, that comes from a new compilation that's just been released, titled 31 Years of Obscurity, The Best of the Black Watch, 1988 to 2019. I hope you're making notes. I will test you at the end of the show. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And um, as you gather, this week's special guest is going to be the man, main man from the band, John Andrew Frederick. So I have, I'll bri- got that interview that I'm going to, as I normally do, break up into about three uh, easy to digest little segments for your digestion or something of that nature. Um, alongside the usual fantastic playlist. But before we have any more music or chat, I always like a bit of admin. If you want to contact me, you can. You can go via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show um, and even on Instagram. And also all the shows are being podcast, um, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. So there you go. I've been doing it for two, three years. So there's a lot of indie bands if you ever want to know. Anything about any indie bands from the golden decade, just check that out. Anyway, look, before we have the first bit of the interview, I think we'll play one more song from the band and then quality chat. This is going to be also taken from that amazing compilation. This is to William, my father, who brought home books on India. Great title. I wonder which one's got rejected, though. Anyway, take it away. Fate. 
Amazing songs, amazing sound. That is uh, The Black Watch with a track titled William, My Father, who brought home books on India. And that's on the new compilation that has just come out. 31 Years of Obscurity, the best of The Black Watch from 88 to 2019. Anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with the main man. Indeed, it is going to be John Andrew Frederick, uh, where uh, we've been chatting, as you do, especially old people, about life, love, poetry and that sort of stuff. And then I asked him a little, about, a little bit about those early years. Well, the 80s, really, because the band, his band began in 87. So I was curious to know what was happening during the early part of that decade. I know this is why I don't get invited to parties. Anyway, John, tell us what you were doing now. Um, I was I was writing a dissertation on Virginia Woolf and Ford Maddox Ford. Um, I went to graduate school to get my PhD in English literature at the University of California um, at Santa Barbara, where I grew up. And it was only after I finished my dissertation and swore um, to the high skies, David, that I would never um, I would become an artist or die. I will. I I didn't want to write about other people's work and um they let me hang on teaching at UCSB for about three years after afterwards and then you know the typical academic sort of protocol they sort of they sort of kick you out of the nest and during that time I had such you know this would be the the mid 80s I had such wonderful students and, you know, of course, I'd always been a, you know, huge music fan growing up, worshipping the Beatles and the Kinks and the Stones. And um, students, you know, uh, because I was, you know, not, not not too distant from their ages, you know, maybe 10 years older than them, um, they'd often find out that I, that I, I was really starting to discover um, jangly pop and they'd, they'd come in with mixtapes of things for me to listen to and or pass things along. And UCSB had a really great college radio station, KCSB. And um, so I just got, I, I spent every spare penny was the first time um, as, as a professor I was making money. So the, the, the kids who worked at record shops knew me. You know, they, they spotted me coming in, going, you know, maybe uh, drooling a touch or rubbing their hands in a, in a gleeful fashion to go, okay, here comes some sales because I just started buying records like mad. And then from that, um, and then that, you know, an outcropping of that decision not to become a critic and write about other, other people's stuff. You know, I, I thought I would be a novelist and I eventually, you know, um, wrote four novels and have published four novels and a book on Wes Anderson. At the time I was trying to write a, a novel about a year that I spent in just bumming around the UK and Ireland and reading a lot. And I got 500 pages into it and I realized this is utterly plotless. And so I turned to writing songs because I always had uh, written poems. And one of my students was a drummer and he said, um, you know, here, here are the Smiths, speak of the Smiths. He turned me on to the Smiths. And he said, you know, um, I play the drums. And I said, well, uh, gosh, I've just given up being a novelist and I can write five songs in the time it takes me to write one page of prose. Do you want to get together and do something? And so we go to his dorm room and listen, listen to Half Full of Hollow or Meet His Murder. And um, then, you know, I said, let's just start to play some things because I've worked some things out. And then the rest is misery. I mean, history. 
<laughs> there it is. Not all misery at all. It's been glorious. I wouldn't change, wouldn't change a thing. But you know, it, it has had its trying moments. So there's the story of the sort of you know, provenance of the Black Watch. The birth, the birth. Because um, what, what was quite interesting was that during that period, and I suppose that's when I became much more obsessed with the whole sort of indie scene, was that we we right. we were lucky because we had the great, we had several gatekeepers which made our lives a little bit easier. Even at the time, we didn't know this and appreciate it, as you never appreciate things at the time. But we had a DJ called John Peel who was playing a lot of interesting stuff, and he would he would do all the hard work for us and sort of get the indie songs that were absolutely fantastic, or he'd get sort of reggae stuff or early rap or African music, and he had this show that was going out sort of sometimes three or four nights a week, two to three hours. And we'd sort of happily record it. And also we had a news, we had three papers at the time. There was the the new musical express sounds and melody maker that would be coming out. So anybody who made a sound that was, you know, relatively interesting quickly got themselves elevated onto quite a big audience around the country. So were, you know, in the 80s at that period, because we obviously had that punk, then a bit of post-punk, and then new romantics, there was the mainstream charts were full of that kind of heavy production sound of Trevor Horn. But then on the other side, the flip side, was all the awkward, alienated, depressed, melancholic, romantic failures, you know, where I was standing. And, um, you know, we were into the Smiths and had been into Joy Division, then The Cure and other such bands and sort of all feeling very, you know, fey and slightly delicate. So were you, had you sort of also picked up on that particular scene? Just through various friends and then those those long-cherished record stores would have, you know, copies of the NME and Melody Maker um, they wouldn't be, you know, the current ones. There'd be a, a gap of a month or so. Um, so you could you could easily just stand in the shop and um, peruse them cover to cover, and nobody would really mind, um, especially if you were friends with the clerks who were there. So, um, and then, you know, college radio wasn't too far behind John Peel, whom we, you know, revered beyond. Um, of course, we were, you know, aware of, of him and the, the sessions that would, you know, leak out um, our, our way um, in in the shops that carried, you know, that were really good about carrying Im- imports. So, um, we, you know, we, we're we were behind you just as the time <laughs> time zone we are right now, you know, is a metaphor for that as it's, you know, nine in the morning here. Yes. Um, just gone. Um, for you, so I mean, we just and of course, if you know, if you're a recover a lifelong recovering, you know, a- anglophile as I am, it's going to be a lifelong process. Process. Um, it just, you know, sort of anything that anything that came from um, Britain was going to going to um, be something you'd put to the top of the um, stack of to listen to. And that is the first part of my interview with John Andrew Frederick, talking about those early years. There is more to come. But anyway, I think we should break it up with some more music. This is uh, a track by the band titled Midnight Through Ivy. Determined 
Beautiful sounds. That is Midnight Through Ivy from the Black Watch. That is uh, taken from their latest compilation. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this is going to be the second part of my interview with John Andrew Frederick, um, where I was talking about most bands and their kind of early, those early years and uh, how, how they sort of got them together. Often in the UK was years of being unemployed and claiming some something like Job Seekers Allowance um, before they were able to sort of release that first single and gave them some sort of, uh, I don't know, step up in the world. And uh, I was kind of curious to know what the process had been for the Black Watch and John. John, tell us now. Well, he faded away. Um, we just we were just mucking about. Um, with the songs, but it you know it enabled me to give them uh, ten songs shape. It was rather naive on my part because I thought, oh, once somebody gets ten songs, a la anybody's record, you know, you can you know fit twenty minutes per side. Um, then it's time to make an album. You know how 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 utterly callow that really sounds today to think just because you have ten songs. But you know, I've I've always thought that I've, uh, people ask me, you know, do you write music? Do you write the, the chord changes down and my answer is no um the lyrics of course and those are shaped and shaped like their poetry even though they're not their lyrics i'm very quite adamant about that um but i but i always always think you know if the melody's strong enough um i'll remember it if it's catchy enough i mean that's one of our trademark things that we write you know songs that are quite melodic and catchy so um, but I met two, uh, the, the drummer faded away and he was a much more serious student than he was a musician. And that was one of the problems of growing up in or starting a band in Santa Barbara, you know, idyllic, um, super sunny Riviera, like seaside town in uh, in a college town that there aren't too many people usually who are terribly ambitious or nearly as ambitious as I 
was and am, and I'm, you know, I would, I would say that I'm enormously, extraordinarily ambitious person anyway, if not quixotic. So, um, it just, and then I found two brothers, Tom and Mick Flowers, who had a friend who played bass, and they knew Prefab Sprout and Aztec Camera and The Wedding Present and Close Lobsters and all these things that I was mad for as well. So we had that musically in common, and, and they're, they're the ones that um, helped me make the first record, St. Valentine, which has just been issued for the first time just this year called The Vinyl Years, you know, on CD um, by Adam Records in Dayton, out of Dayton, Ohio. So, you know, we're very chuffed to find that all that, all that early vinyl stuff that we did back in 1987 that I thought would never really see the light of day. And that I was so I have been so concerned with continuing to be productive and you know producing and issuing um, records that I never thought it would be released, but it was just this year. So you know it's been a bit of a um, conundrum for me to look at you know go back and listen to that stuff and thinking, gosh, my attitude has been for the most part you know I'm I'm sort of glad that it's not been released on CD, but now that it's been remastered and um, and released, you know I'm actually quite proud of the fact that in a very post-punk way you know we sort of grew up in public yes and do you um i mean that was only 31 years ago now do you um listening to it was it quite a shock surprise yeah i mean i was you know my voice has come a long way um i've i've always thought that it was a great idea for artists to sort of grow up in public and then um attempt to best the next thing that they did that um, it's it's sort of dispiriting when you see a, a band start to, or, or experience a band that you've fallen in love with um, sort of dwindle. You know, countless are the bands who've started off, you know, out of the gate from the get, you know, with an incredibly st- strong record and just sort sort of gotten weaker and weaker as they've as they've gone on. Or I think of the spurt of the the first you know four records by you know, by Echo and the Bunny Men how strong those are and, you know, oh, what a falling off there was after that. So, um, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been an absolute trip, David, that's for sure. Yes, I would imagine. It's interesting you mentioned the Echo and the Bunny Man because they seem so important until the Smiths came along and it almost seemed a bit like, you know, they, they I, I, I guess complacency, you know, takes over a little bit and it's almost like they've, they've got their thing and, and suddenly they have a bit of time off. And then another, you know, the latest new kid in town comes along and in a way the Echo and the Bunny Men, you know, just seemed a bit irrelevant. I mean, I know those albums were classic, but it is interesting how quickly things change again and audiences, you know, they come, but then they also stop, stop sort of coming back. Or well, mainly because I suppose the point that I'm making is that having spoke to a lot of bands and I'm often a bit curious about why they finished and a couple of them were, well, actually people just stopped you know, come to see us live and buy in our records, even though we still wanted to keep going. You know, we realised our fickle fan had, had decided to move on, but it, they hadn't moved on. It was just that, you know, those people who were obsessed with music for that period of time suddenly needed to do other things like, <clears throat> you know, homes, houses, work, education, so they couldn't sort of spend all their time worrying about the next release that, that one does when you're, eight, you know, 16, 18 or whatever. So that's quite something. So... The next point, 
The next point, as I wrap it on, um, you know, the thing that, that also knocked a lot of bands out from that period, from 83 to 87, was kind of, there was definitely like C86, Jingly Jangly. And then the dance scene came along, which which a few bands kind of could pick up on, but then quite a few didn't and couldn't be bothered because they by then started to hate each other with passion and uh, full-time resentment. So they gave it up. So you came along at the time when... There was like the grunge scene was a hit in America, you know, coming from America with SST records or STT records and Sonic Youth and the Buttholes. And then, you know, then we had a dance scene and then grunge. So how did you cope with those musical changes, you know, that were happening? Um, essentially by ignoring them, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles after the after St. Valentine came out, um, I got a divorce and I moved to L.A., you know, reckoning that, that that to move to the, the metropolis would be the only way that I'd find really serious um, people to, to help realize my ambitions. And so, um, yes, when I, when I arrived, it was the, you know, the, hi- the height of, of the glam era in Los Angeles and where and, uh, big hair was everywhere just before the grunge, you know, movement came along. So we were never um, uh, seeing as, you know, I, I, what have refused to sort of be trendy despite the fact that um you know there might have been pressure somehow um to try to find a major label record deal to chase after what was au courant but it just didn't seem honest or um interesting really um it's not like sort of nirvana i i couldn't care less about them they were so utterly ubiquitous at that time um, and I think that that made us all the more bloody minded and determined um, to, you know, follow our own path slash muse, what have you. Yes. So you know, basically by ignoring that, um, that that scene that swirled all around us um, and that, that that's how how we sort of survived by playing places, you know, with with a, a small handful of bands in los angeles at the time post the paisley underground kind of thing um you know we never been we never were concerned with being part of a scene or um a movement of any of any sort you know i i hope not out necessarily of arrogance but maybe out of a kind of um um Bub- being in a bubble, an artistic bubble or cluelessness or something like that. Or again, like I said, bloody mindedness to just go, you know, we're, we, we're doing what we do. We were concerned with making records more than, more than doing gigs, although we did countless gigs and tours up the coast and a couple national tours in the 90s, um, which, you know, it's, it, uh, they, were, they were all very arduous, like you were talking about how, how bands may, might not survive that, especially because America's so vast. Um, but I, I think it's just you know, essentially through through not you know not never minding pun intended you know what that whole scene was about. Indeed, there you go. It's a tough life, but um, someone's got to do it. That is the second part of my inter- interview with John Andrew Frederick from the Black Watch, talking about those early years. Anyway, I think we'll break it up with some uh, another song, and then we'll have more quality chat. Anyway, this is going to be obligatory blues. <laughs> And 
There you have more pop perfection from the Black Watch with the track titled Obligatory Blues. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. I will give you our contact details again, but not quite yet because that will just make me sound rather needy. And that's nothing worse in a person than being needy and needing some sort of self-validation or some need some sort of validation anyway. Anyway, this is going to be um, me waffling. But this is the second part of my interview with John where I was talking about, see... I'm now calling him just John. Um, yes, the coping with a band and uh, the ever-constant uh, change of personnel. I just wondered how he coped with that, the revolving door of bands. Here it goes. John, tell us how you cope. Well, the one constant was um, throughout the 90s was Jana Jacoby, who was my um, you know, uh, artistic and romantic partner, You know, who's the, a violinist and guitarist who's now been with Rod Stewart's band since 2001. You know, she was she was meant for bigger, better scenes for the circus. We often, you know, remark on on how you know she wasn't Janice, such a talented musician and and a show woman that she wasn't you know meant for the indie stage. And I'm an indie, you know, rock and, and a guy thinks and doesn't doesn't think uh, you know to paint on a vast can canvas as it were. Um, so she was the one constant, and then you know because because we are a you know a force of of two. Um, and Los Angeles being what it what it is, you know, you know, swing a dead arm ar- armadillo, and you and you can meet musicians. So we did we did have a lot of musicians that are you know um, uh, who are acquaintances or friends, but we just ne- wouldn't necessarily gig with them. And of course, you know, we were so concerned with um, writing heaps of songs and making records that we were you know became great chums with producers like Scott Campbell who's done a number of our our records and they would know people that you know who who who'd be happy to come and play um for as long as they could deal with it or you know all would often but sometimes we'd interview bass players not by having them play but by having them dance instead you know to see if they had rhythm um just for a lark and and or if they were you know had a sense of humor as well you know um, that they could they could just sort of be loose and easy that then we would sort of want to work with them um, if they were just great people and easy to get on with. Yes, God, it must be quite strange when you sort of have members of a band who go on to play Vegas with uh, Rod Stewart because actually, I sure, remember, well, yeah, that, that was very that was very odd. But you know, Godspeed her and anybody else who's gone. You know, nobody's ever been fired from the Black Watch. You know, people have quit. Um, you know, sort of. I, I don't. I'm a Virgo. I don't really like change very much. Um, so uh, that that's been that's been the case. But you know, a number of people who've been in the band. I mean, uh, from the original lineup of Tom Flowers and Mick Flowers, both of those guys have studios. One in Santa Barbara and one in Austin. And Tom Flowers just produced. He's become a you know red hot producer. He just produced the record by the guy who was in Journey. Who disappeared for years and years again his name escapes me because it's not my motif i don't you know 
I don't like I can only name them. I couldn't even really name the hits or whatever. So a lot of times people have gone on to do, you know, really good things and their own thing. Yes. Um, as yeah. well, which is fine. Because one thing that also I notice, and this is one thing that often trips um, a huge amount of bands up, nearly 100%, is, is dealing with the admin and, and sort of publishing and record labels. And you've obviously gone through a lot of record labels. So how did you cope with that murky water that is rock and roll and uh, being ripped off and not ever getting paid? Well, we have gotten paid a, a touch over the years, you know, a couple of times where we've gotten um, things in movies, TV and movies of the week and that kind of that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I continue to lecture um, at various universities just as we hopped from label to label. So so would I um, go go in academically, you know, um, work through a little, you know, educational steeplechase and teach at various schools so that and you know a, a, being a lecturer for 25 years or so enabled me to support myself and instead of you know spending all my money buying records as i did in the in the in the 80s i went and made them there's a nice glib you know sort of encapsulation right there um, so, you know, we go ahead and we've always behaved as though we were a much bigger band than we were or as though we were on a major label. And here in Los Angeles, not to say that this is, you know, um, carte blanche open invitation to say, hey, let's have more people move here. But if you are a band, there, there are so many producers and engineers and studios and there are fewer these days that Pro Tools and Logic have come along and most bands fancy that they can record their own stuff but we've always been the kind of band that said hey we do what we do we write the songs and play them and um arrange them um i've i've touched the knobs in a studio the faders maybe three or four times in the course of 17 records because you get somebody who's been trained to do that and you know is um and just over the moon enthusiastic about recording music and that's their you know that's their per per purview so um, let them do it. So that's that's basically how we did it. We always just sort of got the money together to get favors together to to work for two weeks at a time or three days at a time here and there um, to make a record. And then you know we found somebody because there was all there would always be some somebody here. There's so many labels, more labels nowadays than and, than ever before. We always maintain it's a thousand times easier to get a record deal than it would be to get a booking agent to send you, you know, in a van around the country. Um, yes. So that's how, that's how we operated. We, you know, we just sort of behaved as though we, we had funding, we had a label, we'd find a way to do it. And, and then it just, I don't know, it just sort of um, snowballed from record to record, each record being a kind of, I always maintain that each record's sort of a reaction against the last one. We don't want it to sound like this one. So even though it's all, you know, it's all guitar, twin guitar attack with, you know, choruses and strange tunings um, and hopefully good songs um, that we don't want it to sound like the last one. So it's, I, that, that's how, that's been our MO, David, I think, in an, encapsulated encapsulated because the one because having sort of interviewed quite a few people there's there's two artists that sort of spring to mind is momus and also lawrence and felt who have been so prolific and you know have just kind of plowed that furrow which is kind of making music and it's kind of interesting how many 
of other artists who who probably I don't know probably had bigger success in the eighties, got so disillusioned after that kind of moment where it didn't quite happen, either on the second or third album. You know the dynamicness within the band wasn't good, if not terrible, and they were also totally broke. As some people have said that if it wasn't for for the fact that they were still either living with their parents or girlfriends, they wouldn't be able to survive. But with a few artists, they have just kept on kind of producing creating recording so you've you know you do fall into that category because because your output of work has been quite phenomenal and you haven't had a particular break for decades now no and um i think that there's something demonic you know or diabolical about that sort of sensibility for an artist to be that possessed and or to feel as though i mean perhaps it's kind of a megalomania as well but potentially to, to feel as though you have that much to say um but I, I mean that's again it's a ticklish issue when people bring up the notion of productivity you know or being prolific um i, I always wonder if it's something of a left-handed compliment it's just sort of like the ways in which sometimes we go see a band and you know we we know them or be friends with them and they'd wonder you know how things went or what we thought and you know if you hated it you could you, you sort of beg off and say things like, wow, you guys were really loud <laughs> instead of you guys were really good. So when people bring up the idea, they say, you know, gosh, you've been so prolific. Um, sometimes it has to do with their own psychologies, perhaps, you know, with their fellow artists going, they say that with a bit of, you know, um, lament or remorse for themselves of not being able to produce that, that much stuff. If people have completion anxiety or what have you. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword sometimes, you know, you look at some people just take, take a look at, uh, at our discography and just go, oh my God, where do I start? They throw their hands up in the air and never get round to us thinking, you know, it's too intimidating and the same thing must face anybody who's just starting to get into somebody like guided by voices who have 474, you know, records out. Yes. Well, I suppose that idea, uh, just one more thing about that, that, you know, that idea of disillusionment where you bring up Momus or Felt or whatever, we never had these dreams of global domination or becoming a giant band. You know, I, I just, I, I just wanted to become an artist and, you know, and, and make art. That was, that was it. I never wanted to be a rock star. I never wanted to be famous. Um, I just I, I want my work to be out there and heard by people and, you know, to have enough funds come back in to, you know, enable me to survive. But love finds a way and art finds a way, it seems to. Yes. Well, I suppose two artists that I've always been obsessed with. One is David Bowie. You know, and he did, you know, like I'm just looking at one decade, which was the 70s that he did. I mean, he released an album every year and they were quite varied and produced several albums for other people, like including Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and relocated in several different places from London to, sure. LA to Berlin. So so I think, you know, that's absolutely fine. And the other person who I like, which was bizarrely the same age, was Lemmy from Motorhead, who just kind of, you know, it was like there wasn't sort of plan B. He didn't have any, I could go and do that. It was like, I, I the only thing I'm good at is this. And I'm just going to have to work it like a job. So it's kind of every 18 months an album, a tour, and then repeat until, you know, you drop dead. So I can see that, you know, for a lot of people, it isn't something that much of a choice because, they you know, that's what they can do. 
So, um, yes, on that productivity level, it's more to do with the fact that often the creative artist gets crushed in a way that makes them feel like they just they've lost they've lost it. I don't know if you've read Morrissey's dear old autobiography where, you know, his life is one long misery, which he obviously seems to vaguely also quite like. But it's kind of an engaging book. Um, but yes, you just... I, ro- I wrote it round in it. Um, I just I, I was digging for things. You know, hoping hoping to, to to dig into things that you know wherein he'd talk about the Smiths and and about Johnny Marr because for for me the Smiths are you know Johnny Marr. I'm not a huge Morrissey guy, um, but it's just I don't know. It got it got great reviews and um, it's it's evident that he can write, but um, I didn't. I, there wasn't enough to me about that period where I was really interested in in his band, not in him as a person. There you go. We like to uh, roam around with our interview. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with John Andrew Frederick from The Black Watch. We've still got one more bit, I do believe. But uh, before that, I think we'll have some music to keep the party rolling. This is going to be another track taken from that fantastic compilation by It It Might Just Change Your Life. Anyway, this is a track titled The Tennis Playing Poet, Rothko Said. Indeed. Great titles.
Another classic. There you go. The Black Watch with a track titled The Tennis Playing Poet, Rothko said. This is David Eastall of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can um, make it nice and friendly. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, I just want to say that. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, or even Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there, and it's always nice to hear from you, as long as it's kind of nice and pleasant. Um, and also, all the shows have been podcasts, so you can listen to over three years' worth of indie pop chat, and you can hear those on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbean. Anyway, this is going to be the, the next part of my interview with John, where I'd been talking about the early teen years, very early years, teen years, and what he was influenced by. My years had been people like Glam and Sweet, but what was his? That's what I want to know. John, take it away. Well, I, I went to a very posh prep school, but um, it was sort of the musical talk was dominated. This was in, you know, would have been in the in the 70s, late, late mid to late 70s. And um, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm thinking that there's a there's, there really is a motif or a thread here because um, I spent my lonely prep school years listening to the Beatles and the Beach Boys where you know this was the height of people getting into Fog Hat and Led Zeppelin and Black Oak Arkansas and all kinds of much harder stuff and um and or or the really geeky types would be into yes and Genesis. Um but I I nobody 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 around me was listening to the Beatles and the Beach Boys at all but i was still obsessed with them and it just didn't you know it just that the people would look as you know kids would look askance at me going like why why are you still listening to that stuff it's just it's 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 so fey in comparison to the low riding bell bottomed you know long-haired sideboards kind of kind of stuff that we're into but it just didn't it just didn't phase me i know i wasn't i wasn't touched by that kind of stuff you know, and of course, being an obsessive compulsive kid, I mean, I was a, as a child, I was utterly obsessive compulsive you know, in terms of reading and, you know, playing guitar and, and, or, you know, I was a sports mad kid as well. Um, and I think you have to be in order to, to be in, to be an artist, there's got to be a, a, a real repetition compulsion sort of thing. So I would just, instead of, you know, going, going with the flow of my classmates, I just obsessively compulsively listened to records like McCartney's Ram, you know, or Abbey Road over and over and over again. But yeah, again, I wasn't part of any, any sort of scene there, not by, not, not necessarily, you know, out of a point of pride, but just, that's just, that's just the way it was. I'm a person who goes by, you know, feel I just have very strong likes and dislikes and I'm, Sometimes I punish myself, you know, as it were, by trying to see how many times in a row I can listen to a particular song or a record. Um, I don't, I don't know. That's very strange, I suppose. But there you have it. 
<laughs> so coming to the current day, you brought out, um, you got this compilation together, and you have been kind of very busy, sort of burrow in a way, getting all your material sort of out there, you know, sort of archived. So then putting together another compilation, which is this one, 31 Years of Obscurity, the best of the Black Watch from 88 to 2019. Did that feel quite difficult, what to put on, what to uh, leave off? And um, yeah, because it must have brought back a lot of memories of like, oh, yes, I can remember us recording that. And, you know, does it go in? Does it, you know, does it go off? You know, so how did that process feel? It wasn't difficult at all, David, because um, Scott Kinnison, who runs Adam Records, who issued the the, the, com the recent compilation that's just out now, as well as Magic Johnson, the new LP, um, he um, collated and compiled a list of things because he had been, you know, before he was the head of a record label, he had been a DJ, like so many people who get involved in the industry. Um, and well, I'm, I was never one, but I just think how cool that would be to be able to play records and turn them on, uh, turn people on to things that you, you love. I don't, I think that that's one of the great pleasures in life to turn interested people on to things that they might really like, whether it's films or books or music. Um, so he, I left it up to Scott to, um, to choose the tracks and a number of when he submitted the list to me, I didn't say boo. You know, I just said, okay, it's your label. Um, this, you, I'm, I'm gonna leave it, leave it with you. And um, there were some choices in there that certainly surprised me um, that I, I, I wouldn't have thought were contenders. That, you know, um, to, to put it in, in boxing terms, you know, that seemed like some, some of the songs were. Gosh, I'd never, it would never occur to me to put, put to advance that as, as one of my better if not best songs but it seemed to work he wanted the thing to flow as though it were um a, a, a dj set by somebody who was monomaniacally just <laughs> fixated upon this um little you know jangly guitar -y band from originated in santa barbara and you know to have i guess it's an hour's worth a good hour's worth of of music from us so it was quite easy you know, uh, just me going into it, um, thinking I'm going to relinquish control to this person who's, you know, a man of um, uh, of, of great taste and um, and who knows the band terribly intimately as well. And so I thought, well, gosh, you know, I don't, I, 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 I don't have to fret over it in the way that I might have, you know, been, you know, quite quite overthinking it if, if it was left up to me. Yes, I would. Yeah. Have I tell you, Morrissey would not have been so relaxed as that, actually. But which were the, just curious, which were the tracks that you thought, hmm, that's, that, never saw that one coming? There's one on Flowering called Not Forever Blue, um, which is sort of jaunty um, and or funky and dancey, um, uh, and, and a, little, a little bit slashy dissonant um, somehow with some strange almost... Um, jazzy chords amidst the the sort of you know dance beat. Um, the the compilation ends with an uh, acoustic guitar and violin um, instrumental called "This Is for Chandler" that I wrote for my son. That's also on that um, first CD, Flowering, that came out in 1991. Um, that that that's curious. I think I don't think Scott picked many of the um, or any of the really quite shoegazy songs. 
uh, of ours. It's you know much more um, oriented towards the the quirkier, poppier um, side of the band yeah. because you know we've got both of that going the, the folky element, um, you know jangle pop, twelve string element, as well as a you know deep um, debt that we owe to bands like My Bloody Valentine and Slow Dive. So I don't I don't I don't think Scott is um, terribly enamored of um, those particular bands. So some of the dreamier, floatier, um, more shoegaze, for lack of a better term, um, sort of cuts that I would favor, um, he's left off. So that I think it's for for fans or you know recent recent discoverers of the Black Watch to go and um, seek out the earlier records, perhaps, and find that that side of the band is you know better represented in each of the each of the records it's there, I think there are two or three songs on each of our our records from the get that that are you know quite laden with heavy atmospheric guitars and cooey ooey vocals and dreamy dreamscapes so there you go yes and, we, and talking of um, the shoegaze scene the, the one scene that was uh, you know quite niche in the UK, but it was it's still loved, if not more now than it was at the time, was anything that came on Sarah Records, um, all those kind of bands. I don't know if you came across Sarah Records, but they were particularly... Well, of course. Yes. So yeah. I just wondered if that, that had also sort of been an influence and an inspiration. Absolutely. Yes, of course, without a doubt. Fire, um, creation, you know, we followed those of us who you know, maintain friendships with people in who worked in record stores would um, really, and for uh, uh, the speak of get back to the New Zealand kind of thing with Flying Nun as well. I mean, you could be pretty much assured of um, of the, the quality being pretty, pretty high from those labels like Cherry Red or, or Fire or Sarah. Yes. Sure. And also just, just lastly, I mean, I mean, obviously you've been sort of, sort of on this creative trip now for decades. I mean, what would you say to your, you know, a younger 18 year old self that was, you know, that you thought, oh, that would have been a really good little bit of wisdom just to sort of pick, you know, just to had at the start rather than pick up halfway through that you, you know, you, you develop through or find through sort of experience and doing things. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my 18 year old self that I'd talk to because I started the band when I was 28, you know, like quite, in quite a different phase from the teenage phase. Um, but I, I, I would, I would say the same thing that I say to people um, now, if they ask me to you know, ask, ask me to wax avuncular, I would say, you know, never say never that we often we often um, remark, oh, I'll never do that again, or I'll never speak to that person again, or um, I'll, I'll never get myself in a situation. You know, the, 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 the mere fact is that we don't know what we'll do. So that there's a, there's a way in which, you know, a kind of a self-knowledge comes from understanding that um, we, are, we are, you know, malleable and changeable somehow, um, and not, not to close oneself off to... Um, and go grandstanding like that, you know, to, to let us let experience, you know, sort of wash over us in a much more open sort of fashion. Um, I think that that's that, that, you know, and come what may devil may care kind of uh, approach is the best thing for, for an artist um, to, 
to embrace. Yes, and when and obviously there is a sort of and obviously a lot of things happening, which is good, you know, creating things for the future. But looking back, does it ever kind of give you any sadness and melancholia when you sort of you know with past friendships and members of the band? and, you know, past records. I just wonder if some of them will have different memories when you it go back to them. No, I don't. I don't. I don't have a very wistful attitude or scent or something that, you know, um, smacks of sentimentality. That doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that I don't feel um, remorse or regretful of times where I might have been really hurtful or controlling or dictatorial or tyrannical or et cetera, the, the ways in which as John Lennon noted, you've got to be the biggest bastard on the block in order to have a band somehow. And so I might, you know, I might re regret some of those things, but it's not, it's not with any sort of, you know, um, air of melancholia or wistfulness that I look back on, on, on things. I, I don't spend a lot of time looking back. Um, I, I certainly do listen to my earlier work. I, I never believe people who pretentiously say, uh, or, um, you know, I, I don't ever listen to my early records. I mean, I make records in order to have things to listen to myself. You know, so I love that. I love the fact that Robert Smith one time said, you know, when I, uh, in, in the midst of, you know, um, being, you know, being filled with hubris and showing off to the, the doubtless to, to the, the, the music press in the UK, you know, he said, um, when I want to hear a good record, I make one. And, you know, I thought maybe that's, you know, him being quite cheeky, of course, and or glib. But there is something to that. So if you're concerned with you know, trying to get the next thing that you have to say or write, you know, out, there really isn't time necessarily to look back and um, in, in sorrow, as you were mentioning, so many, so many English bands seem to, you know, when you talk to them in the course of your interviews, David, that, you know, to find that there's a a, a kind of you know melancholia that seeps in i just kind of don't let that happen to me i think being being productive is the best you know way to stave that off yes I, I, that's absolutely true and did you ever get a chance to do any cover versions of other people's material we have um we've done we there was a uh, we did a cover of if you could read my mind the gordon light lightfoot classic and uh, on the vinyl years that was just released record, there's a, um, a very punkish, um, sped up, up-tempo version of um, uh, uh, Eleanor Rigby. Um, it's got some mad violin in the midst of it that's, you know, quite, quite fun. Um, I think for some compilation, well, when we were on Zero Hour BMG in the 90s, we did a, a Graham Parker song. I can't remember recall the name of it, but... Um, and a lot and a hidden track on our Led Zeppelin five record. We did the Beatles. It's all too much. Um, and, but my attitude towards covers has always been, I don't really necessarily want to do them. Um, but that if you are going to cover a song, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, um, incumbent upon you to kind of destroy the song in a way, not literally, but, you know, metaphorically, um, reinterpret it so that it's not not necessarily that it's unrecognizable. I don't really like very many covers at all, save Husker Du's cover of um, Eight Miles High. I think that's a masterpiece that equals the original um, somehow. But I'm just not a fan. I don't. Uh, to bring up Bowie again, I'm not a fan of pinups at all. Um, I just I 
I don't like to see people covering stuff. So over the course of 30 years, I think we've only done done three or so, and one of them's been hidden, and one was just a B-side of a seven-inch. So it just doesn't seem. It just it's not my it's just not my cuppa. No, I, I think when I think when bands do that, it's sometimes that they've got to release an album, and they're probably a bit like fed up with the whole thing. So they think, oh, let's just do that. You know, I don't know. I mean, Pinups is a terrible album. I still think, but um, you know, it's like one of those things. Yeah. That, you know, you're not going to go to pinups if you can go to anything. People else. love it though, David. They love. I mean, they are just there's there there are arch defenders of that record who are big Bowie fans who just go, no, 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 you're missing the point. It's it's fantastic and glorious, etc. I just I don't get it at all. No, I don't get it either. I don't think it's good. But you look. This has been great. And this, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview. This has been great. And I'll probably put it out very soon because it will go in, uh, coincide with the, the, the release of the album, which is good. And when I do it, I'll also um, podcast it. And then you can also, you know, you know, retweet it or whatever on your various yeah, social media. Yeah, the publicist will be quite chuffed and so will the label. And thank you very much for, for this. You know, yes, no, me, that's great. It's all good. So, um, really helping us, you know, gain some more exposure in, in the country I love and, you know, and the world as well. How did you find out about the Black Watch, by the way? It's just a mystery to me. <laughs> Actually, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I say... I've asked the public, the two, the two publicists who were working the record, and they haven't given me an answer. You know, maybe they want to take credit for it or whatever. Because you're, you're, you've had incredible guests. You know, go, going through the list of people, it's just so impressive. The people you've talked to, I'm very, very, very I'm best pleased to be, you know, in that in the company of the people that you've gotten a chance to talk to. Well, it is you know, great. It is great to sort of come across. You know, there's people like Pat Fish, who's in a band called the Jazz Butchers, and you know, I'm good friends with with pat we've been friends for a long time and done some gigs together and he played on one of our he sang on one of our records called jiggery pokery pat's amazing yes. um so that's been a huge in uh, the jazz which has been a huge influence on our stuff so so that question i really i don't know how i came across it I, having you know a curious kind of mind and being obsessed with music you know it's just like you track things down like a Sort of, sure. yeah. I mean, and, and you know, then then you, you get there, and you don't know how you got there, but you you're there, sort of listening to someone's music, and oh, this is really good. This it's happened on numerous occasions, and I think it is just some sort of little link that you know. In the old days, I probably spent a lot of time going to record library libraries sure. and secondhand, but now on the internet, you know, one is clicking away, listening to bits and pieces, and then the most random things can happen you think oh that's a very interesting sound and your ears that's quite serendipity it really is to think that it's quite hopeful to look at that um as well that not just word of mouth mouth but you know infinitely curious music fans of which i count myself one you and i are brethren in that <laughs> respect i think you know yes. for sure i'm always looking you know, it's not that i i spend a whole lot of time listening to stuff while we're recording um, but after we, we st I, I'm on a mad quest to find new things to listen to these days. It's just really, it, it's a very hopeful enterprise to just go, there must be really good things that I can, um, even the, the, the most dis discerning, if not snobbish listener can, you know, go, wow, I can really find something new and good. And that 
is a good thing. Anyway, and that is sadly the last part of my interview with John Andrew Frederick from The Black Watch. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This is David. <laughs> this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Thank you ever so much for listening. Um, like I said, tune in for more interesting indie pop guests for, yes, next week and beyond. As always, I'll probably have some. But anyway, a big thank you for John for giving me the time. Much appreciated. And like I said, the new compilation is out. Go and buy it. It will change your life. 31 years of obscurity. The best of the Black Watch, 1988 to 2019. Anyway, I'll leave you with one more track from the band um, titled, I think this is the one, I Don't Feel the Same. Anyway, have a great week. Don't feel the same I don't feel the same